Hello, welcome back to the next part of the conversation with Simon. If you have somehow landed on this without listening to the first part, then please just head back and find it because this is going to make so much more sense if you have listened to what came before. And if you have, then you don't need me talking to you. So people of the podcast, please welcome back Dr. Simon Michaud in the second of this ongoing series of astonishing ideas for 2024. Anyway, so, so one gram of thorium or uranium produces 24 megawatts of hours of thermal energy. So a plant producing one gigawatt of electricity, where they're going to, you can stitch a lot of these together in a modular form, would consume 800 kilograms of thorium-232 metal a year. So that's a truckload, basically, isn't it? Well, but by the time you've got it in salt form, that's probably, say, five tonne. Okay. Uh, and, and, and a truck can, has 20 tonnes. So commercial reactors are coming on on, on uh, 2028. All right, so this is the first of the white swans. Okay. Swan is is when it lands, everyone's, oh, no, and they run around like headless chickens. We're doomed. It's not going to work. A white swan will disrupt everything, saying we've now got something fantastic. It will help us. Okay. The next one is ammonia-fueled internal combustion engines. Now, the electric vehicle fleet, which is supposed to be the – replacement for fossil fuel petroleum yeah. or hydrogen fuel cell, yep. both have their problems. Oh, we spoke to a gentleman who made hydrogen fuel cells three podcasts ago. It was it looked really quite compelling to me, but the question we didn't get answered was how do you produce the hydrogen and distribute it? So how do you produce the hydrogen in quantity? So you can produce in a small quantity, but can we produce such a lot of it, transport it and store it, and the amount of hydrogen we need is enormous. So how much extra expansion do we need in the electric power grid? That's that's where the trouble starts. So actually what you need is a thorium reactor to produce your hydrogen to power your car. But anyway, okay, so ammonia engine. That, that has problems too, but, yeah, but, but that's, that's where the hydrogen fuel cells work quite well and is a mature technology. So what Toyota have done, now I actually spoke to the Toyota guys. They picked up my work and I, I, I actually met them at a um, conference. And they said, look, we want to get out from under the Chinese influence, umbrella of influence. And, uh, you know, we understand that there's a mineral supply problem. What do we do? So they looked at my stuff and, and then they said, okay, all right, there's a problem. And then they disappeared. Now they've come back. They've leaped over hydrogen fuel cells because to make ammonia, you need to have hydrogen first. But um, ammonia is in a better position to store and transport. Hang on a second. But ammonia is NH4. Are you are you burning the ammonia? Does that not produce NOxes, which are like 300 times more greenhouse gas equivalent than carbon? So, so you burn the ammonia, and then the gas is then captured, uh, and then it's transformed into something. I forget what the outcome is. You must be gathering the nitrous oxides of nitrate nitrous oxide somehow. There's like a, like a catalytic converter that does something like that, but but I don't know the full process yet. But what they've done is they've leapfrogged over hydrogen, and they said, "Look, here is an ammonia ICE." So, is ammonia because you can liquefy it? Is it easier to transport? Is that the thing? That is correct. Um, you put it into like a, a on a low pressure tank, and it and liquefies up nicely. It's easier to transport than hydrogen, but it probably doesn't explode if you put it near a spark either. It is a flammable liquid, but not as flammable. Uh, whereas hy- hydrogen, when it becomes a gas, that's extremely flammable. Whereas ammonia, when it becomes a gas, it is flammable, but it needs a stronger flame to do it. 
Okay. Anyway, so, so what you've got here is a passenger car that can run on ammonia, and you've got a container ship that can run on ammonia. Now, we've got the same problem. Can you make the ammonia? Uh, but another question is, can you make the ammonia out of seawater? Because one of the things with hydrogen, you can't put seawater through an electrolysis cell because the salt water um, is a pollutant becomes a problem. You've got to desalinate the water first. Which takes power, so you end up with your energy return being considerably less than your energy invest. Okay, so what's the ERI of ammonia? Ammonia, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's, these are one of the things I, I've yet to actually do. If you see it in terms of they're, they're providing a service, they're providing a system of a fuel that is can be stored and then moved around like we move petroleum around. So you could use the old infrastructure? We can repurpose the existing infrastructure, but we don't need things like massive amounts of um, battery charging banks and charging stations. That's something that society is not quite ready for yet. And the raw materials behind this are not uh, are not limited in the same way. Okay, it doesn't require that you dig up the seabed or destroy the entire nations of Africa, which seems to be what the lithium is going to require. And you can actually repurpose existing internal combustion engines. Wow. To point. Even if you like rip them apart and recycle them, you can do that. They're the same components. You could actually sort of take out your internal combustion engine pet petrol system, put an ammonia system in, and your car will go. Interesting. Right. There's practical problems here, but there's less practical problems for this than there are for electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cells as a whole system. Okay. Right. So, and yeah, and so I'm of the opinion this has the death knell for the electric vehicle market. The batteries and the batteries problems and everything. And so that's... Oh, the Germans are going to love that. Well, like I said, I'm, uh, upsetting people seems to be my the hobby. Yeah, no, does, yes, yes. But I mean, it's not you. This is Toyota. And I guess Nissan's not that thrilled either. Or yeah. Renault. I mean, what the heck? We've got to find ways that work. And, and uh, General Motors has also rolled back electric vehicle production. I think they're going to go the same way. Interesting. So anyway, so, okay, we've been through that. Right. So remember this one here. This is a pyramid. So we've got two sides. There's application and then there's power generation. Right. So application is transport. At the moment, it's internal combustion, petroleum. Then we've got electricity generation and manufacture. All of that stuff comes through that tetrahedron. So we've got oil, gas, and coal. And now we've got nuclear. So petroleum's being phased out. Okay. Now we've got all this other stuff to phase out petroleum, like solar, wind, hydro, what have you. Mm. We want solar and wind to be the primary energy source going forward, or so we are told. Now, we'd also want to use electric vehicles, there's biofuels, and there's a hydrogen fuel cell. Electric vehicles have the problem of we don't have the raw materials for the batteries. Mm. Now, you can make batteries out of something other than lithium, fine, but we're not going to be able to replace copper or nickel or graphite. Right. And they're all limits. So they're going. Biofuels, we can only make so much biomass. And it uses up a lot of water and it's taking our agriculture. It's an extremely bad idea. Right. So that's going. Hydrogen fuel cell has limitations in the storage and transport of hydrogen. You do it at a small scale, but not in the billions. So that's going. Wind and solar, 
Right. Now, that the buffer to manage the intimacy of wind and solar is enormous. We don't have the technology to store that amount of power for that amount of time. Okay. So wind and solar are going. Everything else, hydro, geothermal, bio-waste and wave, all have limitations to expansion on how many of these sites we can actually deploy. And we don't just need one or two. We need thousands of them. Okay. Right. So each one... There's only so many places that we can actually put up. And so they have their place, but they're not going to be the primary energy systems. So nuclear, if we now call it conventional nuclear, or the, the light water reactors that have been developed in the 50s that we are still using, mm. that can't expand fast enough to be useful. Yes. I also remember hearing you say that even if we could, we'd run out of uranium. So we can actually find more uranium, right? But uranium is a, is a, is a we're wasting most of it. Mm. Right, so if you go through all our reserves and all the way to unconventional, it takes about 75 years. But because it takes so long to build one of these massive stations, we're only getting about 60% of the way where, where we need to be to be the primary energy source. Right. So even if we could, it was the, the amount of reactors we would have to build and the associated infrastructure to support them is huge. Yes, okay. Right, and, so, and then you've got the problem of, well, now what? 100,000 years of nuclear waste coming out the other end. Okay, let's get rid of it. So conventional nuclear is not going to work either. Now, what is the elephant in the room that hasn't been discussed yet is this is really an, uh, an economy of heat. We need coal to manufacture, yes. Right. We, we use heat. Like to make a solar panel, for example, we heat up silicon to 2,200 degrees Celsius and we use coal to do it. Mm. So all electricity comes from heat as well. Right. So, and we, and until we actually fix this, if we phase out coal tomorrow, most of our manufacturing would stop. Yeah. Right. So then we, now, now we've got some of the solutions. Internal combustion ammonia, where the pertinent question is, can we produce the ammonia from seawater? And what power do we use to produce it? Right. And if we can use heat, if we can use heat to do that, then it'll work. And to, to make hydrogen by splitting the water, we need heat around you know, eight eight hundred to a thousand degrees Celsius, whereas nuclear is generally down around the five hundred and sixty degrees Celsius. So it needs an accelerant, or we're going to have to burn it from something else. Then we've got the liquid fuel fission, thorium, mm-hmm. right? MSR, mm-hmm. right? And so, so that's the map. So, so we're, we're instead of solar being the primary energy source, now I think it's going to go to. Um, liquid fuel fission thorium. So here's the map now, and now there's a third piece missing, and that is the combustion of iron oxide powder to produce high temperature. Now, that's not part of this discussion. It's just an idea I'm throwing in, but three basic technologies are going to be the foundation going forward. Iron oxide powder, when you burn it, can achieve temperatures of about 1,800 degrees Celsius, and the powder that comes out of that can be converted back to a useful form. So it's partially recyclable. You're consuming energy to do it. So you oxidize iron oxide. What do you get out at the other end? Uh, so, so you get like an um, an, an iron powder. Uh, I forget the exact um, chemical terminology, but you start with iron powder and you, you oxidize it, and it's an exothermic reaction. Okay, interesting. And then you actually then convert it back with hydrogen, of all things. Um, yeah, so, so that's got to be thought through, and that's why it's grey, not black. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I present to you the purple transition. <laughs> which gets us away from the seven colours of hydrogen, which always upset me somewhat. So, But this is all hinging on our thorium molten salt, which you said cannot come online, probably before the 2030s in any numbers. It'll come, it, that's, that's true, but we will have fossil fuels until then, and we have no choice but to keep using them because we have no substitute yet. If we continue to use fossil fuels at the rate that we will continue to use them, Jevons paradox being what it is, and nobody's showing any signs of reducing. What do you think the global temperature is going to be as a result? I don't know, but what I think is we're going to be forced into a degrowth cycle by virtue of other parts of the system breaking down. Before the the thorium model salt comes online. We're not talking about a seamless transition from one system to another and everything continues. The wheels are going to fall off in the worst possible way. We're all going to see all those problems and we're going to understand those problems. Hmm. Ah, ah, yes, there are problems. <laughs> what can we do? How? Tell us a little bit about the Prometheus project or the Venus project, just so that we understand um, possibilities of what's coming down the line. Okay. So what I'm actually sort of talking about here is, is for I've presented my work now over 200 times to people all over the world at various different sort of groups of seniority, about a third of the time it's been to government in some form. Now, in every single one of those presentations to my face, there has been the same three basic reactions. One, a shock, like they're completely unprepared. Second was they were not able to refute my work even when they were given time to do so. Right. That's telling. Uh, and they would often get me back a second and third time, or they'd pass me on to another. To, to try and refute it. Hey, guys, we've got someone else to tell you why you're wrong. No. Um, I, th I think it's also a case of these ideas are so challenging, they need to hear it several times so they can actually digest it. And work out how to tell their population that this is the case. Anyway, go on. That, that part they don't know yet. They don't know what to do. Right? So that's the thing. They're not refuting it. They just don't know what to do. Right. And so... The second thing, and the th third thing is, and this is where I'm getting at, every single one of them would look me in the eye and says, what do we do? Right. Now, I'm just a guy with a cheap internet, a cheap computer and internet connection, and those guys with the, re with the resources of their entire government department are asking me yeah. what to do. Yeah. So, so what I was also saying is I actually had to go away and think about this, and it turns out, I'm not noticeably smarter than the next person, but I just happen to be in the right place at the right time with the information at my fingertips that I am in a position to say something and do something. And and you're thinking, Simon, you think outside yeah. the box. This is a big thing. But anyway, go on. There's a box. Um, so <laughs> That's <laughs> why the governments get stuck, because all their people, are they only get their job because they can't think outside the box. Anyway, go on. So what that told me was what needed to happen where it needed to happen, where it could not happen, who will do it, and who will not do it. And so what I'm just saying is the solutions that are in front of us now, we all intuitively can see and feel them, right? But when we try and actually get them going in our current society... Yes, this is Threetopian stuff. They never seem to get there. And because, like, a system will defend its own... Survival, you know, it, its own it will defend itself. Yep. To the bitter end, a paradigm will defend it for its own existence. Right, so these solutions have to manifest outside the Western world, right? So we have to sort of get outside the developed world 
and we have to go somewhere completely new. The other thing is is starting from scratch, going to a place where there's nothing and building a new system for the first time ever, right, we can now actually start to think about, well, we've got to build the whole system, which means every part of the system now can be thought about and we don't waste too much time or lose too much time by doing something new. Whereas if you go to an existing town or city and say, oh, I'm going to do an idea, and that idea then has to be embedded with everything else. Yeah, yeah, uh, yes. The bureaucracy will just just bog you down. Okay. For example, the building code. Like one of the you know, innovations I want to do is revolutionise building technology. Like, like, like make, make geopolymers out of rock and 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 smelter slag and volcanic ash. Wow. And then make like a, a concrete alternative and start three D printing buildings. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff, but they won't let you do that in the Western world for the building code. I think you might find Portugal does because traditional dream factory is 3D printing their buildings. But but yay, where are you going to go then? Where are you going? Right, so there's there's about five or six sites around the world that, that I'm looking at. Each one has their pros and cons. The most advanced is somewhere in South America. I'm not going to say much more than that because details are still being discussed. Like things like leases. We, we want to lease several hundred years long. I don't want to build a city and have a year two or three, the owners turn up and say, yeah, yeah, we want our land back now, bye. Or we're going to change the rent agreement. So So the idea is to actually bring on board an innovation hub. Now, um, if I may share my screen. Mm -hmm. So this is what I call Venus Evolution. So this is Venus Evolution. This is an evolution of the Venus Project. Now, the Venus Project was developed in the 70s by Jacques Fresco and his partner, Roxanne Meadows. Now, Jacques passed on uh, a couple of years ago, and, and Roxanne uh, has a team of people around her, and they're developing now. So my work is now merging with theirs. Now, the, the original form of the Venus Project belongs in another time, and they didn't have things like energy restraints or commodity restraints to deal with. Okay. So their work's merging with mine, um, and the vision is this, an evolution of the Venus project powered by an unconventional energy source operating to a new resources management paradigm is now proposed. The plan will have elements of the circular economy, the steady state economy, permaculture, regenerative agriculture, degrowth, and the Venus project, all of which will now merge with resource constraint boundary conditions, both my work and my friend and colleague Harold Svedrup. And so we will construct a technology innovation hub in an, in an unconventional city to the purpose of developing a new energy, raw materials, and manufacture paradigm operated by a new kind of society. We seek to develop a more sustainable relationship with a natural, planetary, natural environment and a comprehensive plan for social reclamation in which human beings, technology, and nature will be able to coexist in the long-term sustainable state of dynamic equilibrium yes we wish to leave our grandchildren a world worth living in so you're doing it you are going to create a throtopia this world that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us you are building this i'm going to start the process so this will start as a chain reaction we start small and the chain reaction will continue we're going to operate on three fronts right so we want to build a society that's ethical and strong and so this is what we have to do. We have to accept our past without regret. 
handle our present with confidence and face our future without fear. Hmm. Because at the moment, there's a lot of discussion in the solution space that involves humanity being punished and actual solutions being sabotaged. Yes. And this has to, evolution has to happen on two fronts. One is um, industrial agriculture has to be reinvented because that's where a lot of the large-scale pollution is happening. The other one is our industrial systems have to re evolve where they don't have such a massive waste plume and they have to shrink in size. And the planetary environment now must be merged with the human systems so we can all stabilise. Yep. That's what we're looking at. Um, I, I love this photo, hey? Okay, for the people listening, it's a photo of a gentleman underwater looking at his wheelchair. So he's he looks like he's standing under uh, a swimming pool and he's got his feet on the floor and he's looking down at the wheelchair that presumably he started off in. Yeah, so it, it's it's just a... Um, it's a possibility picture. Uh, so here's another one. Perhaps you remember this one. My wife, Tanya, is an artist. Yes, Tanya. Um, so, um, so we're going to evolve, doing things better, revolutionary, doing better things, hmm. and accidental, exploiting the unexpected. And then we become gods. Yay. And then we become gods. Again, my wife's artwork. Beautiful. So um, it's actually the legend of the Orphic egg, where you've got the, you know, the serpent wrapped around the egg. Around the egg. It looks like an almost like an Ouroboros egg also. And and the egg itself, by legend, this is an old Greek legend, contains a, a chunk of the mundane universe before structures were put into it. So it's like a starting point. Hmm. It, it's, it's like the uh, the starting point. The, the alchemical legends have the same thing. This is the starting point of all things. Once it breaks out, we can actually create something new again without influence from the past. Right. When the orthodox methodology is proved to be inadequate, turn to the unorthodox or accept failure. Use the past unorthodox ideas differently in conjunction with present cutting-edge technology to create a new paradigm where future limitations are seen in a new light. Industrial evolution is at the crossroads between ruin and the stars. What have we really learned? So a lot of this is that we are both the problem and the solution, how we think. Yep. So now we're getting ugly. We must change the paradigm. Yep. Paradigm shift. Absolutely fundamental. We all want a magic bullet to solve all things. We want like like a, a solution that, that fixes everything. Yes, but without having to do anything. Yes. And they want someone else to develop the solution. Yeah, the market will fix it. Well, what often I hear is, is when human innovation, you, know, you hear things like human innovation is really powerful. Mm. When people say that, what they're really doing is trying to shut down the conversation and they don't want to hear about these things. Leave me alone. Right. So it's a river in Egypt. That's also pretty powerful. <laughs> yes. So then when an idea becomes visible, we go from denial to we want to take it for ourselves to get rich. It's the most frustrating thing I see. I see all the time, almost on a daily basis. Yep. Right. So we want to patch up the existing system with a straight substitution. We don't think in terms of evolution. Yeah. We want you know, the horse, the horse and cart. Right now we've got a thing called the car where we take away the horse, but we've still got this thing with four wheels that moves around on roads. Now we're going to take away the petrol car and we want to put it in an EV. Right, we're, we're substituting the same thing. We're not actually evolving any other part of the system. Mm. So all existing systems are based on ideology with little practical thinking, which is why many of them look like a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Mm. So 
it'll be easier to start. And you can't go to a place where an existing system's already there. It'd be easier to start from scratch. Because when you're building everything from scratch, you've got to build everything so it's easier to build something new. Yep. You don't have to sort of, you know, if you're going to build a city, for example, you know, all the plumbing and all the storm drains and everything. And if you don't have any people living there, you can build it in peace. Yeah. You don't have to try and sort of manoeuvre around. Yeah, it's not evolving up from being a village. You can just start. And can you build in some kind of resilience such that when the next generation comes along and has a better idea of storm drains, they can replace them? Yep. Okay. Exactly. Yep. So, so part of it is is evolution's built in. Whereas at the moment, when we build stuff, we build like we've got all the ideas. Yeah, quite. So we're going to operate on three fronts. So what you're seeing here is you're seeing uh, there's four circles on the screen. Three of them are in a triangle, and then there's a circle in the center. It's also like a, a tetrahedron. We want a sustainable human civilization post-fossil fuels. Now, the way we are at the moment, um, this is, is very odd. Um, we tend to think, for example, in magic solutions. Solar panels will fix everything. Mm. Where do we get solar panels from? Shut up. <laughs> China. <laughs> um, now, oh, yeah, who builds them? Right. So we need an industrial system that sources its own raw materials and has an energy system that's all, all part of the same thing. And that's my work. Mm. Right. But now we also need uh, interaction with the planetary environment. You know, how do we grow our food? How do we live coexistently with, say, you know, natural biosystems? Instead of actually trying to force the situation where we're going to strip resources out of the environment to make money, we're going to coexist with the environment and we can help each other along. Yep. And then the third point is the society and a new social contract to manage all this stuff. When you introduce a new technology, everything's different and society changes. Now, at the moment, we think, for example, solar panels, just an example, but let's say solar panels, is a planetary and interaction interaction plan. It's not. Um, we, we think, for example, an interaction plan with the environment is solar panels. It's actually not. And we think um, a new society with a new social contract is solar panels. It's not. They're separate things. So they have to be developed and stable. And then when they're all together, then we can go into the centre of things. What you're looking at here is actually a map of sustainability that's based around the idea of the alchemical philosopher's stone. At what point, you know, Jacques Fresco had all these great ideas uh, about how things could go. At what point is society stable enough for him to tools down? Now let's take a break. And so here's Jacques and Roxanne artwork. Okay, right. So this is the actual original Venus project. And this is genius. If you were to develop a city where you were to design the city based on the best science had to offer, but the whole design of the city was to optimise the quality of life of the people in the city and the environment, and the environment yeah. what would that look like? Yeah, which is quite a different question to how can I maximise my profit yep. by ripping everybody off, which is what current cities are based on. That's right. That's exactly right. And in fact, one of the things we're going to look at is, is changing the nature of money. That'll be an experiment. So, so these are the pictures. The Venus Project, the website's up. It, it's a, it is an amazing uh, concept. And, and it's very green. I think for people, I, I would encourage you to go onto YouTube. We will put this up on YouTube and have a look at the the images because what really strikes me about this, it looks very space age Star Trekky, but it's it's got a lot of green there. the 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 living web of life is thoroughly integrated. 
Yep. So this is also built into the idea of a um, like a, a tropical uh, environment. The environments I'm looking at to work in because of the energy paradigm I need to put in has to be on an area that no one else wants. Right. I, I can't be in competition for the locals for, for whatever. So we're going to go to a patch of land that no one else wants. And so I'm, what I'm proposing is a gateway city to make this possible in, the, in another step again. Okay, so do it on a smaller scale to prove as a kind of proof of purpose yeah. and, and proof of concept. Right. So I'm actually, uh, we'll get to it, but I'm going to build a city of 10,000 people, yeah. which will be an innovation hub. So we'll get to that in a moment. So And, and Jacques had all these cool ideas of, well, what if we had cities on the sea? Yeah, but then that was hijacked by the, the network state people, wasn't it? But yes. So um, I'm actually looking at a site in South America that's on the coast with a pristine maritime uh, uh, marine environment. And so what if we had a settlement on the sea to interact with? Right. So um, all right, here we go. Build a city for 10,000 people. Right, so this is the plan. Um, it's going to be something like between 1,500 and 1,600 and, and two kilometres wide uh, in diameter. There's going to be a cultural hub in the centre and there's what we call the Prometheus Institute, which is a research hub wrapped around that. The Prometheus Institute is going to be a series of research groups numbering 2,000 staff of scientists, engineers, technicians and support staff to do a research a variety of ideas and then cross-fertilise. And so here are some basic... Um, Areas. So here is a. Uh, my, my wife had a uh, crack at wow. visualizing this. Yeah, I love the fact that it's got a spiral. It looks like a snail shell right in the center. That's beautiful. So the idea is at the very center you've got the cultural hub, and then wrapped around that you've got the working spaces. Wrapped around that you've got the residential living areas. Wrapped around that you've got um, agriculture areas that are going to, it's, it's going to be more spread out than that because we want to actually have farm farming areas merged with biosystem areas where you've got natural biosystems, but farming can be moved around in a rotation. And things like grey water circuits and regenerative agriculture and, and, and all that. And you'll need a hospital or at least a medical facility somewhere in there. So we actually will need medical facilities of a much higher calibre than is normally associated with a 10,000-person city simply because once we start doing this, we may actually be forced with a situation where people won't talk to us and services won't come. So we need to be more self-sufficient than normal. Okay. Do you not think it's more likely that they'll decide to invite you, frankly, because you'll be doing something that they want? We'll be open sourcing. Your, some things will be open sourced. Okay. Some, th like they will just give the local community. Some things will be kept confidential, depending on what we do. And some things will be uh, commercialised in an IP hub but we're going to do it in a way where it's actually easier to do business with us than to actually come and okay. invade us. Because it seems to me you've been talking to the Chinese government and they would, I mean, they'll just build one, surely. They'll just look at this. You've, you've got enough of a plan there for them to go, oh, yes, we could do that. Sure. So they do it. They think they've got it all sorted. So that's what I'm saying. It says, you think you can do this? Off you go. Go for it. Yeah, no. Yes, because the problem with this is going to be funding it. And the Chinese could just, they could do a dozen tomorrow, couldn't they? I mean, they could fund them. We are. There is a funding strategy on the ground. But the whole okay. key to survival for me is to give away power. Mm. We're going to start out as a private corporation with a job to do, right? It's going to be a much smaller, uh, we're going to start like a, like a small section, like 50 people land, and, and we're going to start. And then over time, we're going to build. 
And there'll come a point when we go from a corporation to a society. And when that happens, like I'll be the CEO of this corporation, I will then stand down and then uh, control of this will be handed over to a democratically elected government. And then I'm going to uh, mosey on off to my next project. Right. So, but 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 then by saying I'm going to cede power, what that means is things from the very beginning are built where power is dispersed. So if I'm abducted by aliens or hit by a bus, a few hours later I'm replaced, and the and the, and the thing goes on. Knocking me out means absolutely nothing. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So it's not hierarchical. Uh, yep. Yeah. I've just been exploring voting systems and quadratic voting and consensus voting and Bardo systems and things. That's, so even that, even working out democratic ways of gathering opinion mm-hmm. and consent versus consensus and sociocratic means even that uh, r- running as an experiment would be interesting and then bringing in different economics i mean simon the potential for this is is extraordinary as an experiment in human connectivity and our capacity to live in community again because we've lived in community for 300,000 years and then this last 50 years we've decided it's not fun and we don't want to do it anymore yeah we've made a mess of it to f- for, I want this to feel like uh, this is like a long-range idea, but when we develop a new society, I don't know. The, 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 everyone who's tried this in the past has failed. So we've got a game theory laboratory to actually look at like what might work and what might. So we'll get to that in a moment. I would like this to feel like a society where sacred feminine collaborates with sacred masculine, mm. right? And and so that's a sort of fundamentally different society that is also technologically based and has a intimate relationship with the natural environment in a symbiotic, dynamically interaction form. So indigenous cultures all over the world have done this, but without the technology. So what we're trying to do is harvest the best of indigenous understanding of how to build a culture and then bringing 21st century, the apex of 21st century technology into it. One of the ideas is to have a conference every year or so. We call it the Council of Elders where we go around the world and we find people who are spiritually aware but also have good ideas and philosophical ideas, put them together with all the social so, uh, social growth, the people working on the social stuff, mm. uh, the social contract, and all the information technology people as well, put them together into one conference. Right. Yeah. Feed them, feed them with as much food as they can stand, uh, get them to have a good time, and get them to cross-fertilise ideas, and we do it every year. So get all the you know, Aboriginal elders, no, not all of them, but like some of them from Australia, yeah. um, the you know, shaman from the uh, Amazon jungle, uh, the Native American um, elders. Um, yeah. And Maladomasome and, and the people from from Africa and everyone, and the Sami. and Everyone I can lay my hands on. Yeah, absolutely. And then the refi guys from Portugal and the, the kind of blockchain socialists and the people who are... And everyone, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's not, we not we don't want to recreate their world because we're in a different world. We want to learn from them to help us create this world. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're moving forward. We cannot go back and we're definitely not going back. This is, this is a very high tech image, but it predicates, it is predicated on a different way of relating and it's predicated on a different value system from the sound of things. Yeah, it is. So, for example, agriculture, at the moment we do industrial agriculture and we're going to operate in a mandate where you're not allowed to use petro, petrochemical fertilizers and you're not allowed to use genetically modified organisms. So we're going to have around the table all the practitioners of permaculture. Yeah. 
organic farming, regenerative agriculture, uh, but also the best we can arrange for, you know, for ecologists uh, and put with them open-minded practitioners of the existing agricultural science, horticulture. We can't, we can't throw, it, uh, throw out everything. And we say to them, these are the limitations. How can we have an exchange of ideas and develop an entirely new paradigm of agriculture going forward where we have a genuinely sustainable relationship with the planet and we can grow our own food mm. and manage our own waste? Yeah. Hang on. So just moving to the next part. So, all right, this is the Prometheus Institute. So develop an innovation hub. This is the, Every city has a reason to be. Mm. Obviously, there are problems with human society. And it says, all right, what are the problems? And I said, well, we need to actually have to find a new way to live. And the new way to live is not obvious. There's lots of ideas we have, but how many of them work? Mm. And we've also got to change ourselves. We've got to change how we see ourselves, how we feel about each other and ourselves, and how we interact with each other and everything around us. That's the hard bit. Right. So assemble all unorthodox ideas. And it's actually very simple. Okay. It's, it's one relationship between us and everything else. And it comes down to how we see ourselves. Sounds complicated, but actually it isn't. Okay. Assemble all unorthodox ideas in one place. Give complete access to orthodox methodologies and allow them to cross-fertilize and nurture them going forward. Operate to a mandate to reinvent the industrial system develop a suitable system of high-density energy generation, develop a system to source raw material commodities that are local. So I'm, I'm talking about like like reinventing mining, mm. reinventing manufacturing. Okay. I want you to talk to Hugo Sparrows, really. Uh, anyway, later. Develop a manufacture value chain. These are the sort of people I sort of want to you know, pull into this. A value chain that produces finished products from raw materials in one city. Not for everything, but for a smaller number yeah, keep keep the loops very tight. Yeah. So if we were to run society on a smaller number of components and simplify everything down and then manufacture those components locally but source those raw materials locally. So I'm going to collapse the 6-6 continent just in time supply system. Into one city. Into one city um, for some things. And then a small number of cities can then trade with each other. Okay. So this is a series of ideas that I put together. Wow. I just rattle off like yeah, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and in the center, you've got the management hub, but then you've got all these different ideas. Where each department will facilitate a breakthrough in how we do things, and then cross fertilize. At the heart of all of it, though, is an energy paradigm change. Now I don't know if I was telling you, but I'm writing a book called The New Electric. When I wrote my big report, um, I came across all these unorthodox ideas. And management asked me to take them all out because they were a bridge too far. And yes, yes well, that really add anything to them. And <laughs> management. See, this is what we've got to not have in this new city is a layer of management who gets you to not do stuff. Yeah, well, they, they were saying, like, look, we're a geological survey and we're already well and truly over our skis on this one. And this is a little too crazy. Take a cold shower. And so, look, I'm a physicist, physicist and geologist at my core. And so I found all these crazy ideas, like Nikola Tesla, what was he doing? And if it did work, which I think I understand it now, well, how would society use it? Or what could we learn from it is probably a better question because I now think that 
we should not do what Nikola Tesla was proposing. Okay. Can you uh, enlarge on that? Are you about to enlarge on that? Uh, all right. So, so you know when you have like a tuning fork, two tuning forks, and you tap one with a hammer and it vibrates, and the one and the other one will sympathetically vibrate. Yep. Right. So um, Tesla had the idea that everything's harmonics and frequency, everything. Okay. Right. Uh, and and matter and energy were on the same spectrum, but from you know like slightly out of phase. He had the idea that the Earth atmosphere had what was called the Schumann frequency, which is not different. You know, and um, he was able to transmit electrical power. What he was doing was actually making, uh, uh, generating power with hyd hydroelectric generators at the Niagara Falls. Hmm. Hydroelectricity, once you set it up, it's going forever and you know, there's no reason why it can't keep going. This was back in the 1890s when electricity wasn't really there yet. So much electricity was coming out. He said, look, we'll never need, we'll never, this is more electricity than society will ever, ever need. <laughs> right. But because Jevons' paradox hadn't been thought of then. Okay. I, I would like to admit Tesla, but, but he strikes me as a remarkably naive genius. Right. Anyway, so you see, he had this idea where, where um, he had, with, a, with an aerial tower, transmit electricity from New York out to Wycliffe in um, British Isles and back again with 98% efficiency. Without using wires? Without using wires. And do you fry all the seagulls um, that fly between your... So that's that's the part that's the part where we should really think about. Uh, so the idea was, let's say you've got a ship and you're driving along in your ship. Instead of a fuel tanker or battery, you've got an aerial and you're downloading power and using it. Whoa. Right? <laughs> it, it, it sounds interesting, but consider, if you will, Wi-Fi. Yes. You're transmitting energy of, of a sort through the air and you're using it. Yes. And and you can charge your batteries with your Wi-Fi. But the amount that you would require to power a ship would mean that if you you know licked your finger and, and pressed it against the mask, you would frazzle in a second. So, well, there are ways of actually doing this with frequencies where you don't frazzle biological entities. But we're actually now looking at, and, and it comes down to bone density of mammals in particular. So we've got very serious problems at the moment where things like 5G electronic smog happens to be of a frequency that's very close to human mental health frequency. Aha, uh -huh, that explains a lot then, doesn't it? Right. And, and that, that, there's a lot of things, for example, there's experiments where they have, they're growing plants under a Wi-Fi router that's turned on versus turned off. And there's a massive difference. Okay. Wi-Fi is disrupting living things. This was one of the many vectors we were talking about earlier. So should we be putting industrial levels of energy into the air? The answer is no. Probably not. Right. But what it can do is it can tell us about what energy really is. Okay. And I believe that um, we've only partially understood what energy is. In our heads, the way we use energy, it's still burning stuff. Mm. Yeah, and spinning a turbine, which is incredibly inefficient. Right. Yeah. So, but what we call magnetics, gravity, and electricity are interacting in ways we don't understand. When we first developed electricity in the 1830s, we didn't know what we were doing. We were still finding our way, but opinions were formed back then that we still use. What if we were to go back and repeat all those experiments with modern technology and modern insights? Right. 
and and let go of all our suppositions. There you go. You are mentally fit to be in Prometheus. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in the zero point because, guys, I'm looking at a slide and zero point is on there. And I happened to share an agent with the guy who wrote the book, The Hunt for Zero Point. So I spent quite a lot of time talking to him. And I there was a particular question in his book, which was what happens when you inject the virus of fascism undiluted into the arterial system of the body politic of the USA. Yep. And so I used that as one of the kickstarters for treacherous spies. And of course, we're seeing that playing out in real time as we speak. But um, the concept of zero point energy was was basically that the gravitational field can be a source of infinite power. We are sitting in a sea of energy at a quantum level. Yeah. There are vast, vast amounts of energy like at an atomic level. Yeah, because you're, you're on a planet that's spinning at a fairly fast rate going around another yeah. body of energy. And if we could harness that in ways that aren't just solar. But but they didn't find it, according to his book. They had not got there. There, there, there are several papers I found. It's called the Casimir Effect that was proposed in the 50s mathematically, and it was proven in the 1980s. But what they do is you have two aluminium plates really close together, and as you pull them apart, you're harvesting zero-point energy. But it has to happen on a really small scale. Machine technology in the 80s showed that zero-point energy did exist, but it was so weak it was useless. But the smaller you go, the more useful it is. But now that we've got 3D printing and nanotechnology, okay, right. that to me changes the rules. Right. Also, you've got things like um, the uh, White House released, the American White House released pictures of uh, what they now call UAPs or Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, UFOs. And they basically said they are real. We just don't know what they are. And so one, I actually stood up in a presentation and said, look, I don't care who or what is actually flying this, whether it's a green midget with antennae or a Russian agent. What is the energy system and what's the propulsion system of what we're seeing if they are real? So all, car, all options are not on the table is the outcome of that. And, you know, um, <laughs> everyone laughed nervously. Ha, 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 sit down, please. Um Right. Yeah. So, so there's that. And the other one that's interesting here is the um, electric universe theory developed by Wallace Thornhill, and they've got the basic idea that um, electrostatics is the fundamental force of the universe, not gravity. Right. And and so some of the insights from that, and they, they developed a medium temperature furnace, a plasma furnace of twenty five thousand degrees. And if that is correct, and if they're able to do it with relatively little energy, based on their insights. And that is industrially very useful. Anyway, so the whole purpose of this is to assemble all these weird ideas of energy into one place. Uh, a lot of them are theoretical. Um, a lot of them may not work, but studying may teach us things. Mm, that's okay. But, um, enough of them, to me, uh, to the point where they work, where to, to me there's something here. What that is, I don't know yet. But they've got to be worth exploring. This is what you said the Chinese are doing. They throw 20 things at the wall and see which one of them sticks and then keep repeating ad infinitum. The thing about what really is striking me about this is how how are you going to fund it within a paradigm which is entirely extractive and which requires profit and where vulture capital requires returns? Have you got a whale who doesn't require returns? So there is actually a way to do this. There's two funding strategies on the ground. The first strategy will be asked, we're going to launch in the next couple of weeks. So by the time this podcast comes out, I'm hoping we can actually say, so there it is, here's a website, let's roll. 
the Venus Project now, for example, has things on their website showing that we're looking at this. The first stage is crowdsourcing. And what we're trying to do there is getting the starting seed so a small group of people can leave their jobs without risk. Like I can't leave my job if I don't have something to go to. Right. And so there's a small number of people who will then go out, flights and accommodation to go out and talk to venture capitalist guys, the big fish. Now, the amount of money that we're hoping to raise is between three and five billion to build this city. It sounds like a lot, but as it turns out, it's chicken feed, the amount of money that's out there. So what kind of person we want is uh, what we call a legacy investor, who they know and understand that there's a very serious problem. They've got a lot of money, and they want their family name associated with developing the next generation of human civilization. They're also going to want their family to be part of it, aren't they? They're going to want protection for their family and their family's kids and their family's mother-in-law's cousins next door neighbor. It depends on who we talk to. So whatever money comes in, what strings are attached to that? Okay. Now, there is revenue coming off this in terms of uh, we want to actually let's go to, before we go to that, let's do a few other things first. So there's a two-tier economic system. So first we're going to look at the necessities of living in the society. This is everyone in the city, their accommodation, their food, um, medical assistance, education, all of that is actually part, just complementary of actually working at this. Right, so that's the, the first. The second one to tier is a conventional monetary system in some form. So, so people get two wages. It's like a tokenized, uh, is, is it blockchain? Is it, is it some sort of cryptocurrency that's actually geared towards management of resources? This is the resource-balanced economy that I propose, which is an evolution of the resource-based economy that originally came out of the Venus Project. So everyone in the city, whether they're actually working on stuff or not, their needs are taken care of. Okay. On top of that, they've got a way of interacting with the rest of the world and accruing wealth. And if they want to go and spend money on stuff, they can. So you've got a basically you've got a universal basic services yeah. and a universal basic income, and the currency of the universal basic income will be in some way coterminous with a fiat currency in the outer world. You, pretty much. So, so imagine if you actually get a job. Every in the beginning, we're a corporation, and we're going to give people a job. Here's your job. Okay. As part of your job, you get you know here's your house. Um, your transport's free. If you want to own a car, you can, but there's the, we're going to reinvent transport. We're going to get to that. If we... So you won't need a car, it'll be fine. Oh, we'll, we'll see about that, but but we, that's the, where we want to get to. But things like um, food, we'll be buying food in mass from the local city and then we'll distribute it and distribute like a, a supermarket where you get what you want. Mm. And then, but, but we're going to dynamically manage through dynamic equilibrium all resources at the supermarket level what gets consumed and where, so we never get to the point where we hit with resource shortages, right? And everyone actually understands what we're doing and it's transparent and everyone can audit the system about where exactly they are. Okay. But as part of that job, you also get a wage. Like at the moment, I've got a wage. I work for the Geological Survey of Finland. They pay me money once a month. And yeah, and you can do what you want with it. If you want to blow it all on World of Warcraft, you can. If you want to buy a horse, you can buy a horse. Yeah. Horses cost money. Um, <laughs> um, and so what we're trying to do is change the nature of money and what money gets spent on. So what actually, you know, how do we fund all this? There's actually two streams. This is actually a big image. So we've got the city, but around the city, 
on a train line is a constellation of industrial systems. Whoa. Okay. And at the centre of it is a thorium molten salt reactor. Right. Now, each one of the... So we know... We can't... If we just wanted a research hub, you've just got some offices. Okay. But that's not enough. Yeah. People have ideas, but then you've got to turn the ideas into something. And that's the hard part. We're going to have a series of sites that will take those ideas and turn them into things. We're going to be taking industrial waste streams from all around us and turning them into and and, and processing them and turning them into uh, products. I'm getting somewhere with this, as in I'm going somewhere with this. So here's an example. Okay, a friend of mine called Alan Butcher is actually looking at getting a, an oxygen and water source on the moon from rocks for the European Space Agency. Right. And he's one of the people I want to pull into the Prometheus Institute. What he's doing is he's bombarding rocks with microwaves like a domestic oven. On the moon? Does that not require an enormous amount of energy to get there and back? Oh, this is this system runs on an energy system similar to a hairdryer. Okay, but you've got to be on the moon to benefit from it. No, 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 I'm... I'm no, I'm hoping to do this here. Okay, right. I'm actually replacing mining. <laughs> Your old employers are going to love this. Okay. Uh, who? What? Um, so the imagine, if you will, someone in the tea room puts a rock in the microwave to see what would happen. To see, yeah, because you do, yeah, as you do. And so what happens is the atomic rock structure breaks down, and molten globules of metals are produced as well as pure oxygen. So you know when you actually put a bit of aluminium foil into a microwave, you get sparks. Yeah. That's what we're harnessing. Wow. Right, sparks. And it's it's more energy than you put in. Mm, it's exothermic. So it's more energy comes out than what you put in. It's it's a weird... No, 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 no. We've just developed this is a perpetual motion machine. That can't happen. No, no. There's a weird relationship between um, sulfur in particular and microwaves. So you are putting energy in. But that energy is used very differently. So, so, for example, when we do a blast, like like a, in a mine site, and we've got explosives and we're blowing up rock, 99, 98% of the energy is wasted, right? The, the, the Most of the energy is wasted, and only about 2% of the energy is used to break rock. And that's actually happening with most of our energy actions. What if we had a way of harnessing more than just 2% in an energy system? This is what seems to be happening here. And so I've yet to actually go and meet these guys and see for myself, but these are the pictures they've sent me. And my friend Alan tells me that he, they've written, he's written a paper. Like There's the actual paper. Okay. And his name is Alan Butcher. So he's the last author. On the European Lunar Symposium in June 23. And that paper can be looked up by anyone. So anyway, so this is what happens. is they microwave the rock. Basalt, for example, each mineral is held together with oxygen. Take the oxygen away, and you've got these metals looking for a place to go. And presume they all come out mixed together. So you've got the iron and the aluminium and the titanium and the silicon. Sort of, but they're all concentrated together. And they'll fractionate, will they? We well, this is this is the research. They haven't looked at this side of things, but they don't care about the metals. They care about the oxygen. But I'm going to get my grubby little paws on this, and I'm going to do some serious research. Oh, they're doing this to create oxygen so that people on the moon can breathe. That's right. Oxygen and water from rocks. Right, right. I don't give a shit about the metals. Me on the oh. other hand. <laughs> we want the metal. Now, watch this for a game of soldiers. We go to a useful industrial site, for example, a smelter, that has a lot of waste 
You get paid to take the waste away, especially the toxic stuff that's full of nasty metals. <laughs> Thanks. Get paid to take it away. Put it into one of these things or a plasma torch. And so now you've got like concentrated blobs of metal. So instead of going to a mine site in the middle of nowhere, I'm going to go get a couple of rocks from down the road. And then you come out the other side. So you're actually making metal. Use a plasma furnace. And remember, we've got a thorium reactor backing this. So energy is the problem. Make feedstock out of that metal to make 3D printing of manufacture, which is you know, out of manufacturing. And then you end up with saleable products. Now, because the way of 3D printing is, they can print anything. If you've got the feedstock, yeah. it's limited by the information you've got. So imagine, if you will, one shed, rubbish goes in one end and saleable products comes out the other. Mm. Yeah, and your AI is helping you to design maximally design what you want out of your 3D printers. And then your only real big cost is transporting mm -hmm. the waste stuff, which might be coming from halfway across the planet, but still. It gets even funnier because there's a weird relationship between sulfur and these microwaves that accelerate this reaction. Now, sulfur happens to be in all mine tailings, and that's what's causing the mine, acid mine drainage. And there's all these tailings in mine sites all over the place, and they don't know what to do with them. Oh, they create sulfuric or sulfurous acid, and then that leaches out into the local water supply. Yes, acid mine drainage. Well, Take that stuff away, put it in microwaves. The sulfur becomes an accelerant. Oops. Right, and it actually burns stuff up, and you're, you're left with metal globules. But the metal globules are things like iron, titanium, aluminium, silicon. <laughs> oh, you can make your own solar panels. It, but are you not creating – the sulfur must be going somewhere. It's becoming another sulfur oxide, so you're creating acid rain. It's being burned up, and it's been isotopically um, uh, consumed and chemically transformed to something else. Yeah, but that something else is likely to be H2SO4, isn't it? I don't know the answer to that question yet, but my understanding is the waste plume off this thing are relatively harmless. Okay. So something's happening to that sulfur I don't understand yet. Yep. If that is the case where we are getting noxious gases coming off, it's the same thing as the ammonia treatment. Catch those gases and chemically transform it into something inert. Okay. Yep. Yeah, there must be a use for sulfur somewhere. Okay. Right. So back to the money side of things. There is a whole lot of things... So if we go back to our big map, we've got a big city. Well, sorry, we've got a city of 10,000 people with a research hub in the very centre and an, on a train line, a constellation of industrial sites that are all optimised together to operate like an organic farm where the outputs of one operation are the inputs to another operation. Really actual, genuine circular economy. Yes. Right, exactly. All, all the stuff that I've been looking at for years now, I'll take that, thanks. Right, but but it, it's it's the principles of regenerative agriculture applied to heavy industry. Yeah. For the full value chain from raw materials all the way up to manufactured goods. And energy is the key to all of it. Now, this city has uh, and two, two money sources. One, you've got an, um, a 2,000-person strong innovation hub. Hmm. That innovation hub will be an IP commercialization hub. And the IP, uh, I'm an inventor, right? And I, like I've, I've invented stuff, but there has to be a better relationship between the inventors and the people who do the commercialising. Yes. I'm King Bunny. I'm CEO of this operation, so we will do things differently. I want a situation where inventors want to come to my city and actually work with me on this stuff. So the inventors are there and they actually get a, a fair and reasonable 
cut. So it's not all going to be open source. No, no, you open source some things. Okay. For example, how do you actually make fresh water out of seawater cheaply and easily? Yeah. So many people don't have drinking water. How do you have sanitation services? Yeah. How do you grow food without fertilizer? Yeah, and you can do all the social stuff. Like, how do you make democratic decisions, and how does it work to bring everybody together? And what happens when you've got conflicts in the lab? That's actually the real information humanity needs going forward. The money system wants industrial stuff. Okay. So some things will be open sourced. Some things will be kept confidential because of the nature of it. Okay. And some things will be sold. There will be so many spies in this system, Simon, that you're going to have everyone feeding back to somebody. Keeping things confidential is going to be hard. But anyway. It depends on what we're doing and how we're doing it. There's a way to set the system up where that doesn't matter. Okay. You know, that's what I'm saying. If spies want to do stuff, they'll take stuff. That's fine. It's easier to do business with us than to try and take stuff from us okay. in some form. Uh, this is where IP is actually, the value of it is actually you go off and do it rather than own the IP. Yep. Or something. Some, so some IP will be commercialized. There'll be revenue. All of these industrial sites will be producing valuable stuff which can be sold. For example, you take the tires from mine sites, hmm. cut them up, shred them. Yeah, it's a huge. Actually, let me show you that that's actually in here. Here we go. Oh, my God, they are so huge. Okay, people who are listening to this, these are big tires. So they're about four or five metres in diameter, and when they wear out on these big mining trucks, they just take them off and dump them, and they, again, don't know what to do with them. So it's part of the mining. And some of these things are so huge, you can see them from orbit. Oh, great. Now, a passenger car tyre has seven litres of oil in it, or it used to. I don't know what the ratios are now, but there's a lot of oil. If we were to go and collect these end-of-life tyres, cut them up at site and shred them, bring the shredded material back to where we're working and put them into what's called a pyrolysis plant mm. where we heat things up without oxygen, Okay, that rubber breaks down into a fuel oil. Right. So we get rubber products, carbon black, which we can then convert to graphene. Oh, can you? Oh. We've got a graphene manufacturing circuit. Right. You steal scrap, but you get fuel oil, which is a diesel substitute. And so what you end up with is this. We want to build a city. We're going to need construction equipment, and that's going to run on diesel. And we're looking at the diesel shortage. And so we can actually sort of have a situation where the end, where the fuel source for anything diesel, based on a recycling idea, until we actually get things established. Okay. Right. And so, but, but what comes from that is a situation where we're making graphene products. Mm. So if we can make lots of graphene products, even though it's a relatively small site, they'll be highly valuable. Yeah. Wow. So if someone wants to take the idea, and they do, oh, now you're going to go set this up and make you make this yourself. But hang on, we're still selling graphene products. And the idea is to actually have new ideas coming on so fast. Yeah, anyone with a brain is going to want to come here because this is the place where you can connect with other people and it doesn't. you're not siloed in the way you are in academia and you're not hobbled in the way that you are in commercial industry. You've got the chance yeah. to cross-fertilize with people who get it. Right. So this is this is this is the actual you know task here. So in, in the beginning we're only going to have ten thousand people and we're going to be a corporation where everyone's got a job to do, but eventually we're going to become a conventional society. 
and it's going to be a city like any other. Now, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about before we uh, hand over is the idea of transport. So this is the document that um, you've already seen. Now, this is actually a text version of this presentation I've been showing you. But what is in here? So when I was in Amsterdam, I saw an, a, a transport system where we had cars, bikeways, and a walking path where everyone had their own separate set of traffic lights. Mm. Bikes weren't just shoved up to one side. And underneath the train station, they had a bike park for three, uh, was it 7,000 7, bicycles? Yay. Yes, because they're sensible. Yes. So we build it in. So Jacques came up with this idea, you know, monorails. And back in the 70s, this was exotic, but now they exist. So a lot of his ideas were quite prescient. Anyone who goes to the Florida site can see Jacques' old workshop where he's got his old models out, and they are hardcore cool. Yay. So we've got, like, monorails, but we also need to move um, physical goods around the, the city. Yep. So we've got this idea of this is how they transport ore at mine sites on a conveyor belt. So it's like a shipping container that, that actually is on an underslung thing. And so what it, what it means is you don't need train tracks. This can be suspended. So come up with this idea where you have a, a two-way monorail on top of a structure and you've got like a shipping container underneath. Oh, yes. Right. And so next to it, you've got your conventional truck, uh, uh, your road system, but also a bikeway and a pedestrian path. Brilliant. And, and they're all interacting. But if you've got a situation where it's actually easier because you don't have to park cars to get on a monorail and move people around or have stuff moving between these industrial sites and shipping containers, and it's like, you know, when you have like Amazon has like a, um, a, a package management system, like where, where a package goes. You have a system like that, but you're managing stuff moving around the city. Okay. And so what I'm trying to do here is reinvent transport. It's, we're no longer dependent on a car. A car is not necessarily the easiest way to get around if the infrastructure is built. So if we have like a network of these things, and there's going to be a lot of networks for the people that are there, but it's going to be an industrial site that's going to generate a lot of money, and there's going to be a lot of money up front to build it. Build the infrastructure in so this is the thing. Wow. Wow, Simon, you just need to – you need Musk basically, don't you, to, or somebody that big to just go here, have it all, make it happen. There's a lot of money out there that's looking for a place to land because they knows there is a problem. And, and nobody else is coming up with comprehensive solutions like this. So there are people who are coming up with new ideas in, in in innovation hubs, but each hub has a different purpose. Yeah. And this one I'm proposing is different to everyone else's. It overarches everything. Yeah. And so the plan is we will start small and we will do things in a in a chain reaction. And because when we're going to an area where there's nothing, and so everything has to be built, which means what do we build if we make these thoughts and here it is. As long as there is actually nothing and we're not just tipping off all the local Indigenous people because they don't count. But are there areas with actual nothing there? No. So the site we're looking at, the one I like, somewhere in South America, it's owned, we're talking to the owners, it's a massive patch of desert where there is nothing there. There's no water there. There's a lot of it. It's 60 millimetres. Okay. 
the few scorpions and some cacti and that'll be it. The locals drive, there's freeways that go through it. And so yeah, there's a few places where the locals go to the beach, but there are no settlements there because there's nothing. So we're going to land with energy. And then you can convert. And if you've got energy, and then you can do stuff. This is extraordinary. Like We'd ask so many questions about this. But let's, Amy, we'll come back for another go. Assuming you haven't been assassinated and or kidnapped by one of the trillion dollar <laughs> businesses that you're going to put out of business. But I'm just so impressed with your vision. Final question, 2024. We come back this time in 2025 and redo this. Is there anything concrete that you see on the horizon that you think we'll be able to go, yeah, that, I mean, AGI, ASI, another war, let's not go there. Anything technological or conceptual or political that you think by January 25 will be there? I think two things will happen. One is thorium molten salt reactors are appearing in molten plates places around the world. I think they're about to appear in several places at once conceptually, and which will set the stage for a few years from now that they'll start physically appearing. Second thing I believe will happen is uh, ammonia as a fuel, internal combustion fuel, will make its play and it will be similar to when hydrogen made its play seven or eight years ago. First, people didn't understand it. Then it started to overrun electric vehicles. And then all the businesses go, oh, the next big thing, we have to have it. I do think what we call free trade and globalisation will become harder and harder to deal with. Like, And, and so we're going to see a more regional dependence on for doing stuff. And But everyone's going to be talking about, it's fine. We've just got to tighten their belts and hang on for it. It'll all come back. It'll be fine. Yeah, but no one's going to believe that anymore. So other than investing in the Venus Project, which would obviously be a very sensible thing to do, ordinary people tighten their belts already, start growing things in their garden. What else? So change your thinking. Um, this is easier than it sounds, but change what you value. Where at the moment we're taught to value things. If we started valuing people and ideas instead, um, and we got to the point where for, you know, Christmas, for example, if all Christmas presents were made by hand by the person giving them to them, Christmas becomes a very different thing. Or you, or you offer an experience rather than a thing. Let, don't let's just hand the kids yet another toy. Yes. And so we, we've got to also learn discernment to understand the world around us, don't be afraid of threatening ideas and dark ideas. Because there comes a point when you understand them and you're no longer emotionally upset by them. And once you understand them intellectually, you understand what needs to happen. Right. And people, enlightened people, the ordinary person that is enlightened starting to collaborate with others is a force to be reckoned with. Yep, which is what the podcast is about. So we've got to start the process of doing this. So there are lots of things the average person can do. So if you try not to think in terms of fear like we're programmed to, but also see the person next to you ultimately is your solution, not your enemy or competitor. I think we should stop there, but that feels like a very good end point. Okay. Because we, we'll come back. We'll come and do something else. You're going to come on our cutting edge. Ah, that's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, it's a Sunday evening and people get to ask you questions. Yep, we can do that. Uh, so people will have listened to this. You can come and talk about something else briefly and then people can ask you questions and then you can go away and we will discuss amongst ourselves how everybody can integrate these into their lives, which will actually begin to get these ideas 
anchored and grounded in the world. Simon, this has been astonishing. Mm-hmm. As a way of starting the new year, it's just utterly fantastic. I'm so impressed with all you're doing. Okay, see you next time. Well, there we go. So the Prometheus Project, from the sound of things, is going to happen. There is clearly a lot of work still to be done, but Simon's on it, and he has people who get it, who want to support it. And I am hoping by the time this hits the airwaves that we have a link where if you're interested in supporting this or you know somebody who might be, you can go there. If not, I will add it to the show notes as soon as I have it, so keep checking back. And that apart, enormous thanks to Simon for his time, for his energy, for his foresight, for his ability to bring together so many disparate ideas. As people, as members of the human species, we are really good often at problem solving, but most of us are really good at solving very narrow, focused problems, which is how we get to where we are. And what we need now are the big thinkers, the people who think wide and deep in the way that Simon does. So I was blown away. And I hope you were too. And I hope this goes somewhere because in all of the world full of people who blur out Simon's slides because they can't quite cope with what he's saying and you have to ask why he was invited in the first place, but that's a whole other conversation. There are also people who get this and we who get it need to be working together. So let's make 2024 the year where we really give up business as usual and start working together to make the new realities actually happen. So we'll be back next week with another conversation, more realities that we can make happen. And in the meantime, huge thanks to Caro C for the music at Head and Foot and for some truly stellar editing. Thanks to Anne Thomas for the transcripts. Huge thanks as ever to Faith for the website and for all of the ideas and thinking and conversations that keep this podcast going. And as ever, an enormous thanks to you for listening. If you know of anybody else who wants to grapple with the really big ideas and the ways that we could move forward, then please do send them the link to the whole of this series. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.